Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution podcast on the Indo-Pacific, China, America, and the fate of the world. I am joined by my co-host in crime, John Yu. John, say hello to everyone. Hey, Misha. Hi, everybody. And we are uh, really pleased this afternoon to have our friend John Pomfret join us. Uh, I think that most of you know John from his reporting for decades uh, and a great deal of that from China. Uh, John was uh, at Tiananmen Square. Uh, you'll remember we talked uh, extensively about Tiananmen a, a little bit earlier this year. John was actually at Tiananmen when he was a reporter for the AP. Uh, he then worked for the Washington Post, where probably most of you know him, from 92, 1992, that is, to 2013, uh, and served in China from 1996 to 2003. Uh, in addition, he is a prolific book author, as well as a first-rate stringer, and uh, some of you probably know his most recent book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, which is a history of America and China from 1776 to the present, uh, as well as an earlier book, uh, very well known, called Chinese Lessons, which is a story, uh, a history of when John was one of the first American students to study in China during the phase of opening up. So we are thrilled that John is here uh, with us today. Welcome, John. Thank you very much, Misha. Thank you very much, John. Great to well, have you. We want to jump right into it, although uh, John, John, you did. Did you say that you actually had a mailbox? You, did you have something in the mailbag today? Uh, but yeah, before we start the interview, I just want to, you know, Misha's pro always talking about how her, his mom uh, sends him letters about uh, reviews of the show. Well, you know, the worst thing of all is to have an Asian mother review their child's work. And so, unfortunately, my mom listened to our podcast last and she had some thoughts. It goes like this. Why do you guys talk so much like professors? Of course, um, we are professors. Said, Why you it, make it more entertaining. There's too much substance and not enough entertainment. This is a very strange comment for an Asian mother to make. And so it, here he is. Isn't, isn't she proud that, that her son and, and her son's co-host are both doctors? Oh, we're not no. that kind of doctor. No, <laughs> I, I got it. Okay, well we're gonna we're gonna try to make it we're gonna try to make it entertaining, uh, but we have serious stuff to talk about. We have there there is the world of U.S. China relations is a boil and a royal. In fact, guys, I'm I'm willing to bet, though I don't know what I'm willing to bet that by the next time we do a podcast. We may have seen some sort of unprecedented action in Hong Kong, which we will have to come back and and talk about. So there is there is a ton happening. But what we really wanted to focus on with John Pomfret is actually closer to home. And it's it's a fascinating period in not just U.S.-China policy, but in the China studies community in in the United States and what is going on as – policy towards China that has, at least from one perspective, been fairly consistent since the opening of relations in the 1970s and normalization in 1979, uh, is, is being questioned and is under um, a sense of, of whether it should be going on or whether it needs to be uh, reevaluated. Um, 
this is actually manifesting itself not just in policy debates that we've seen, but actually in a whole bunch of competition, so to speak, for the public sphere among the China specialists themselves. John, a few weeks ago, you wrote a, a widely circulated piece in the Washington Post. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that piece was, why you wrote it, and what it was in response to. And we'll go from there into a just a broader conversation about where we are with China today. Thanks. Um, so the, the piece that I wrote was a, in response to an open letter signed by 100-plus um, people who had been involved actually in crafting the – in many cases involved in crafting and the, po- the previous policy that the United States had had for China, basically the policy of, of a, a somewhat open-ended engagement that we had constructed with the PRC since the 1970s when Richard Nixon made his historic trip to China. And their letter um, basically argued that the current policy of the Trump administration was one that was pushing China into a corner and that China is not actually the enemy of the United States, and that we needed to adopt a different type of policy vis-a-vis the People's Republic of China, and that they did not believe that the Trump administration's policy of being tough on trade, being tough on technology transfer, uh, was, a po- was a good policy to, to embrace. And they seem to be arguing for a return to sort of a kinder, kinder gentler policy vis-a-vis the People's Republic of China. And my response to that letter was um, a sort of a gut response in that having kind of spent six years trying to write the history of the United States-China relationship, I noticed a pattern in the way that many China scholars deal with China, and that is to, uh, specifically from the United States, and that is to deny the Chinese agency over the, the basically the nature of the relationship and basically to put all the onus on the United States for whether the relationship is good, bad or indifferent. And I think that's actually a profoundly imperialistic thing to do. Um, and um, uh, so so that was, you know, sort of my um, kind of motivation for for writing the letter, basically to point out that. Um, the current crisis, if you will, or the difficulties that the United States is facing with China right now really has a lot to do much more with with China than with the Trump administration's China policy. And that in, in effect, there is a sea change, as Misha noted in the beginning, in terms of how the United States and the, the U.S. policy expert community is viewing China right now. And, and in many ways, these people... Um, are a indication. I mean, their 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 frustration is that they're no longer being listened to. I think profoundly, and that's a profound frustration that they have. And I think as part of a sort of a uh, a last ditch effort to try to uh, become relevant again, they they wrote this letter. I think. I think that in many ways, even though they represent the Democratic, in many most of these people are, are, are representatives of the Democratic Party. Even China experts within the Democratic Party have moved on in many ways as well. So, John, this this seems to me like a, uh, a really sort of an epical moment in in Chinese studies uh, in the United States. Now, obviously, from one perspective, uh, those who are doing 
if we would just want to call it Chinese studies, are not necessarily concerned with with policy, right? They can be ancient historians and they can be linguists and they can be uh, literature professors. But that that letter, is, as you noted, uh, was actually very widely subscribed to in, in the, the one that you responded to in, in the Washington Post. And it had a combination of policymakers, a combination uh, of academics. And it, it, it seems that it has brought out into the open uh, right at the end, you mentioned that many have moved on, but it seems that it brought out into the open this this split um, that when I talked with uh, some people and actually some friends in common of ours, they were a few months ago, they were very careful to try to say, no, 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 there, there's no real split in the community. It's it's just that um, we might not like something, you know, that that that's too forward leaning or we all still work together. We all still see China the same way. Do you do you think that's true or do you think there's something more fundamental going on that that actually brings us back to a reassessment, a historical reassessment of where China's been for 40 years and where we've been? Well, I don't I don't know if we're yet at the point of a complete historical reassessment. I think that generally speaking, I mean, I think the, the issue really is has engagement failed and there's a lot of arguments on both sides um, that, you know, on one hand, you have a group that says it's totally failed and what we need to do is de- decouple completely. And on the other side, it's like, no, don't give up engagement. There's always hope. And then most of us actually are in the middle somewhere seeing there were great benefits to engagement. But the 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 pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that we thought we were going to come to, which was a much more liberal China, is proving to be. Uh, a, you know, a shimmer up pretty much. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pipe dream. So, and I think that generally speaking, people have come to that. Most people have come to that conclusion, but, well, the but there were a hundred who, I mean, th- those were some, those were some really big names uh, on that letter actually. So um, I- I'm wondering if, if you really feel that most have come to the conclusion or, or if this is a, this is really going to turn into a much more fraught, um, a debate amongst the the sinologist community. Um, it could, but I also think that among those signatories, very few were below the age of forty, hmm. and um, hmm. and I think that that's significant. Um, uh, most of them are relatively elderly, and their policy policy making days um, are pretty much over. And that's my sense, and I could be wrong, but. In engaging with younger scholars, regardless of their party, uh, you see a much tougher view of the PRC than you do from the older generation who was around for the early days of the relationship. Now, that's I, very interesting. Well, why do you think that is? This is a generational issue. Well, I mean, partially because um, there was a lot of and they're all I mean, there is always lots of romance in the view of the U.S.-China relationship. But I think. The generation that initially forged the resumed relationship after the 1970s was a generation that also had ties to the past of the U.S.-China relation, to the to the perhaps their parents were missionaries, uh, perhaps their parents were business people in China. Um, and so there was a, a, a much stronger emotional bond with China than you do see among the younger generation of people 
who were edu- and many of whom were educated in China, but um, who did not uh, have such a strong emotional romantic tie to the nation that, than their predecessors did. Uh, and also um, among the generation, the younger generation, you don't see many of the – I mean we had great fruits of engagement in the 1970s and the 1980s. Particularly, I mean the United States and China had a, an effectively a de facto alliance that took down the USSR. That was an enormous contribution from the American perspective to our security and to the world security. Um, but since the 1980s, particularly since – um, 1989, you do not see any significant security relationship develop between, between the U.S. and China that can justify the faith of, of a better relationship in the, fu- in the future. Um, you see a significant number of people and experience who've had experience in China who've basically been burned, whether they've been in the business community mm-hmm. been in the security community. And so you don't have that ballast or that history that the people um, who signed that that letter saw. I mean, Ezra Vogel was a national intelligence officer during the period of time when we had a lot of cooperation with the Chinese on intelligence matters. Well, those co- that that period of cooperation is over, and there are no benefits in that, to that relationship now, or much more limited than there used to be. So he's writing from a historical experience that is significantly different than his counterpart, you know, uh, in, in, in current days. And I think that has a lot to do with how people view the relationship and and the potential successes. Now, did you uh, see there was another letter that came out uh, in in response to the Washington Post letter uh, that said, stay the course, and that was also signed by about 100 or 130 uh, signatories, uh, many of whom were in the military. It was uh, written and circulated by uh, James Fannell, who uh, was the former director of uh, operations and intelligence for U.S. Pacific Fleet uh, before retiring a few years ago. And that that letter um, basically took exactly the opposite uh, point from the the Washington Post letter position, which was to say that uh, this is a, a needed course correction, that the pressure is correct and what the president doing is doing is right. Um, if if you saw that, is is that uh, the the a side that you would associate yourself more with, or are you sort of carving out a middle ground? Yeah, I, I'm kind of you know the the purple. You know, I'm a little bit red and a little bit blue here on this issue. I profoundly believe that the we have only one choice, and that is to engage China mm-hmm. uh, deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to do it with far less hope that the engagement is going to somehow, quote unquote, shape China's rise. Um, I think that's a profoundly hubristic and we need to have a lot of humility when we go into this relationship. At the same time, I also understand the necessity of some element of decoupling specifically on technology because we cannot put ourselves in a position where we're facilitating our destruction through sharing technology with the Chinese that's going to allow them to win the economy of the 21st century. That's madness. Um, And we've been doing that for 40 some odd years. So, but at the same time, I I look at some of the confrontation. I think there's, there's there's, there's necessary confrontation, but there's also unnecessary confrontation. And I think on some issues such as 
the South China Sea. It's important to do, for example, freedom of navigation operations, but it's also really important to have our allies along with us when we do these operations so that we can... And on other issues such as Trans-Pacific Partnership, I also think that 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 was a huge um, own goal, unnecessary own goal that we we scored against ourselves in trying to, 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 to... respond to the challenge from China. So you, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm, I'm the wet noodle in the middle. Right. You, uh, well, we, that's what we appreciate on this show. Wet noodles. We're, we're, none of us want to take a stand. So you're no, sitting right in with us. Noodles. We just well, appreciate we do. noodles. We just appreciate noodles of all right. kinds. Spicy noodles. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. So you mentioned uh, not killing ourselves over the tech for 40 years. And that you know, jogged in, in my mind the, the fact that you've been going for 40 years. Your life has been intertwined with China for 40 years. Um, what is, is this what you expected China to be? Is this where you expected the relationship to be? Because this this claim of yours, which I, I hadn't quite thought in the way you put it, that there really is a major generational gap, means that this may not be a simple aberration where a few policy tweaks will bring everything back to where it was. Rather, what we have is a fundamentally different experience set and mindset going forward. So can you just sort of tell us from 40 years what what you expected and and whether you thought this is where we'd be? Well, I think that my experience, I spent 20 years living in China. So and over a a pretty long stretch of time, 40 some odd, uh, almost 50 some odd years. And my experience in China of China is a country where many Chinese people are extremely positive and friendly towards the United States. But I think that many people on that list confuse the friendliness that the average Chinese people person feels for America with the potential friendliness of the people who are involved at the higher reaches of the Communist Party of China. And I think it's an important distinction to make. And I think that even from the early 1980s, there were a significant you could as a, as a student and they didn't care about us students at all. But even as a student, you could sense the paranoia within the party about the United States. Um, and that came to a head in 1989 when Deng Xiaoping basically blamed the United States for the counter-revolutionary turmoil around Tiananmen Square. It's continued to this day where, of course, American agents, quote-unquote, are at the, from the Chinese, from the party's perspective, are at the center of the Hong Kong demonstrations. And so you see very, very clearly, and I, and I felt very clearly, as, even from my early days as a student, and then going forward to the Tiananmen Square crackdown, and then as the correspondent for the Washington Post, there's a significant interest group within the core of the party that does not like the United States and views us and has always viewed us as an enemy. And I think that that core now dominates policymaking. In the past, it didn't so much. Um, there were, you know, there were people like Zhu Rongji and others who were perhaps more friend, you know, positively disposed towards the West. But now you don't have that anymore. And so that's a significant shift in China which um, parallel and, and that is one of the reasons why so many of the people in the younger generation of China scholars are looking at China with a far more jaundiced eye than their predecessors, because the anti-China, uh, the anti-American wing um, uh, of, of the Chinese Communist Party now dominates the show. 
And is, and is that then uh, spreading, you know, as, as we, we've talked a lot about Xi Jinping, we've talked about what he is, is doing in terms of, of uh, you know, the crackdown in civil society and, and uh, shifting the, China's relations with the world. Is, is what you just talked about, the hardline approach, which I assume we have to trace back to him, uh, given his, his predominant position now, but is that beginning to shift uh, or spread out to the regular Chinese, the Chinese that you, you know, were your classmates and your friends and people you've known for 40 to 50 years, meaning as as positive as the Chinese people were about the United States, are we moving into a more dangerous period where perhaps on both sides, but but I'm mostly interested to hear your take on the Chinese side, that they're beginning to view the United States as an enemy? So first, I would take a little issue with the we have a tendency, because the United States were focused on personalities, to blame Xi for everything. Uh, and I don't really think that that's necessarily true in this case. I think it was already quite clear in the second administration of Hu Jintao and Wen Xiaobao that China was moving in a far more aggressive direction. And it uh, specifically, I think it began more around 2008 in the financial crisis when the Chinese looked at the United States and made a conclusion that we were on a um, uh, unstoppable fall from grace. And now is China's moment. You saw really at the beginning of triumphalism there and the beginning of and, and then with the color revolutions, increasing paranoia that the United States was interested in spreading that evil disease of democratization to China. Um, and I think Xi took that and accelerated it starting in 2012 when he became the party chief. But I think that that was already on the ascendant well before he got into the position of power. Um, yes, but to answer your other question, your second question, yes, I do see. I think the anti-American propaganda in China is now at a, at, a, at a height that we haven't seen since 1989. And with their patriotic education campaign movement in the high schools they are and in the universities, they are successfully cleansing the minds of their use of any anti-American feelings that they might have had. So, yeah, I, I see that on a, on a long-term trend towards a far more negative view of, of America than in the past. So uh, this is uh, John Yu. I, I, you know, part of the, some of the letters uh, seem to be kind of finger pointing about past policy mistakes. And so I wanted to move towards uh, what should we do? Uh, the one thing about the uh, original open letter was it seemed to be recommending not much in terms of change of American policy to China uh, from what existed at the end of the Obama administration. At the same time, I think, uh, John, you said, well, the uh, response letter uh, just seems to be calling for uh, maybe something like a containment-style strategy like the one we uh, pursued against the Soviet Union, which, as you pointed out, it seems impractical given the many deeper ties we have with China. So what, what would be the top three things you would do, John, if uh, you were, uh, you know, secretary of state? Oh, boy. <laughs> and it's the question we always want to get, right? Yeah, <laughs> what would you exactly. do if you were king of the universe? Right? Yeah, luckily for everybody, <laughs> I would never be there. So, I mean, I think the first thing would be to, um, I mean, although it's politically difficult, we need to really reengage with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And do it obviously in such a way that's going to protect the American working class. But 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 that's I think an important beginning to any reassessment um, and reengagement in Asia. 
Um, the second thing we need to do is we need to, to basically, and, and as as that the first letter noted, yes. um, uh, we need to really reach out to our allies because dealing with China is not you can't G two this situation to success. The G two was and is a joke. Um, we're not going to be able to manage the world's future in a condominium with China. That's ridiculous. In fact, the only way we'll be able to deal with China is if we work with our allies from the Western world and also in Asia. And I think that it's important for us to use the Chinese expression to, to create a united front, not to contain China, but to deal with China. Contain if we need to, but to deal with it. That's very important because that's the only way that the, the, the tech transfer issues are going to be able to be solved. The only way global warming issues are going to be able to be solved. Proliferation issues are going to be able to be solved is through a united front in, in, in dealing with China. The Chinese hate that idea. They want to deal with everyone on a bilateral nature, of course. But I think those two two things are very important. And then so what, I was going to ask, what, what would you uh, expect to see oh from uh, China in response to your top two or top three policy changes? And then how would we know, right, like that these were successful strategies or in a way are they about more like uh, putting things right in our own house and almost doesn't matter what China does? Like the TPP kind of sounds like one of those ideas. Yeah, I think we really, I mean, I think that that, that's the most important thing that we really need to begin to put things right in our own house. Um, and the Chinese actually work with us best when they view us as powerful. And we need to engage, you know, basically re-embrace the concept of being a powerful nation in, in all its colors, which is, is a leader of a united front of like-minded nations pushing freer trade and pushing um, uh, international uh, uh, norms in, in dealing with the Chinese. So in that, that respect, it sort of does remind me of the containment strategy that we used against the Soviet Union during the Cold War in the sense that fact internally what's going on with China first. Rather, we should right, build a, an alliance uh, and we should – it's almost like treat China like a billiard ball. You know, We just look at how they act and how they respond externally uh, and we should react to that. But – the first letter, the open letter, seemed too much, to give too much faith to the idea that we could actually have a strong influence on what's going to happen inside the Chinese government to, as a way of moderating their policy. Right. I think this this yeah. idea, this chestnut in the letter, that, that there is sort yeah. of this liberal core inside the heart of the Communist Party of China waiting for smart American policy to liberate it. It's just, it's just wild. It's completely mm goofy but again it ties into this hundred year some odd plus view that the americans have had that they could change i mean in the 1930s american uh, missionaries and uh, educational missionaries they used the word plastic for china china was would be plastic in the hands of american missionaries and american um, educators. Um, the 19th century, we had this idea that we were going to turn China into a Christian nation. Um, this, we had this concept that they, they called of a blitz conversion of the Chinese from Confucianism to Christianity. And I think that this idea has kind of still there in the minds of many people when they view of China saying, if only we would have the right combination of U.S.-China policy, we'd be able to um, em- empower the liberals at the heart of the party in, the, in China to turn China into a more liberal society, just goofy. I just think, you know, mm. we 
we need a huge dose of humility when we follow the policy to China and to realize that we're, we're, we're really not going to well, – often when we affect things, we do so in a different way than we thought we were going to. Yeah, yes. But do you think, do you think that the, the policies you're recommending – and this would be, I think, maybe the response of the open letter signers. Certainly not my view, but if I were them, what I would say in response to you is – but what you're recommending might trigger something in China that could make things worse. You know, like, okay, I heard you say let's make uh, the United States stronger, tighter economic alliances, maybe some more spending on the Navy. But what if that triggers an arm race? What if, you know, that makes – what if that reinforces uh, China's worst fears and interpretations of what we do and it causes them to devote more money into right, military spending? What if it causes them to try to cut us out of the – kind of economic or world order, whatever it is they're building with the Belt and Road Initiative and their trade efforts. It. Yeah, mm-hmm. They're already doing it. They're invo- yeah. they've involved in an arm race, a one-sided arm race for decades. I mean, they've had double-digit defense spending since, I think, every year since 1989, except for three years. Mm. Right? They have an anti-aircraft carrier killer missile, which they've just done their first sea test on. They just tested um, a, new, a submarine-borne nuclear weapon. So um, this is a nation that is engaged in an arms race with us. We, we just need to wake up and realize. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, and in terms of trying to cut us out from regional economic partnerships, well, they're trying to do that. Now that we pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Chinese are offering up their re- regional comprehensive economic partnership as a model and a alternative to that. So, yes, they're also actively involved in excluding us from economic relations in Asia. So they're doing it. Um, the question is whether we're, we're going to respond or not. And I, th- I just think that the letter was blithely naive about what the Chinese are actually doing. And it, and it soft-pedaled China's mistakes, um, whereas it put more of its emphasis on, on, on the Trump administration's mistakes, which I just thought wasn't fair to begin with, but it also muddled the wa- muddied the waters of exactly what the problem is. Well, uh, John, I, we want to keep our promise. I know you have limited time, and we're already at the 30-minute mark uh, that you could give us. And I know you're on the West Coast already, which means that uh, you probably think it's dinner time. It's even though it's just the middle of the afternoon here. Um, so, uh, John, thanks for joining us. This is a really great conversation. And uh, Misha, do you have anything to add before we let John go? No, I just I want to echo what what uh, John you said and and thank you um, for coming on, but really for explaining this. I think from the you know the perspective of someone who's been looking at it for so long, um, but also it, it, I, what I found is that it, it's actually not been easy um, for a lot of people to. Um, uh, to to take this position, quite frankly, and um, it, it the the dominant narrative in Washington is still, I think, one of uh, amongst the the cognoscenti, right, amongst the Asia experts, is that we cannot move away from engagement; that we're the ones causing the problem. And so, John, what you did uh, is, is really, I think, a, a signal service in in trying to uh, give a much deeper and more complex. Uh, understanding of where we stand with China. So once again, uh, I hope we'll be able to talk with you soon. And uh, thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Well, just one thing, if I could add, I know Please. we're probably bumping up against the deadline, but no, no. I, I am a total supporter of engagement, but not right, yes. engagement for engagement's sake. 
Right. Just maintaining a relationship with China is, I, I think, a fool's errand. I think it's important to you have to have a relationship with the country in order to accomplish things, not simply because you're worried that if it's not good, then the thing, everything could fall off the rails. Absolutely. And I, and I think um, certainly I agree with that. I, I, I believe, John, you does. And that's the attitude uh, I have towards Misha. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very transactional, um, but but it is not engagement if for engagement's sake. So no, we we do we definitely understand, and I think that you know we're at that point. You know the the ancient Chinese concept of the rectification of names, right? That yeah. that things have to uh, when when the reality uh, no longer conforms with what you call it, then you can't really understand where it is, and maybe that's where we are. In this China relationship, we've 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 imputed to engagement something that no longer corresponds to reality. And what we need to do, and I think we're groping towards, is coming up with a new formulation that corresponds to that reality, and which is going to make better policy. So uh, again, we we appreciate it, and we look forward to being in touch with you. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Join Thanks, us again. John. Okay. All right. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with with John Pomfret, and I, I really do think that we are on the cusp of a of a broader uh, reassessment of where we are with China, um, whether that's generational, as he indicated, or it is what Irving Kristol said about uh, liberals who become conservatives that they've simply been mugged by reality. <laughs> that's a great it, it, point. That may be the case with with the China watching community, but there is the. You know, those who hold to the old uh, view are not going to go into that uh, quiet night. They're not going to do it gently and they are going to fight as they have done. So this is this is just the beginning. But there are other things, John, that are going on in Asia, believe it or not. It is a a region of three point five to four billion people. So there's other things going on than what's happening with China. And one of the Important things that happened uh, in the past week was the upper house elections in Japan. Um, yeah, tell us about it. I mean, uh, you know, I think it doesn't get as much coverage maybe in the U.S. as it should, but those were extremely important, were they not? They were important. And in fact, one of the reasons it doesn't get as much coverage is because it's taken as a given that Japan is a stable democracy that will have uh, free and open elections and power will transfer between parties. And, and that's a very good thing. And and one thing I think we shouldn't uh, take too lightly, given everything that's going on in Hong Kong and, and other regions uh, of, of Asia. But uh, in this case, uh, specifically, the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, which is headed by the current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, won uh, in the elections. It was not unexpected. Uh, Abe did not get uh, a the supermajority that he was hoping for, which would have allowed him to uh, very easily uh, um, revise the constitution and, and potentially get rid of the uh, famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, Article 9 for pacifism. But I, what I think the, the real significance is that this ensures that Shinzo Abe will be the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history. Uh, he and came I, bet, in, I bet less than 1% of Americans could name who was the record holder before him. <laughs> uh, it was Yoshida Shigeru, uh, who was the prime minister uh, it, well, in post-war history. Yoshida Shigeru, who was the immediate uh, post-war prime minister. Uh, there were a few socialists before him. Who's the uh, worked out the deal for the restoration of Japan's uh, sovereignty, I guess, and was the one who dealt with MacArthur. Yes, no he easy was, task. Uh, in, 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 well, in, in, in by some lights, he's he's called the Japanese Churchill. 
uh, and sort of had the same larger than life character. I think there was, I should know this. I think there actually was a prime minister in the pre-war era, uh, that yeah, may have served count. longer, but not that it matters. The point is, is that uh, Shinzo Abe has brought to Japanese politics a stability uh, that is really unprecedented. And if you go back to the 1980s, uh, after the five-year premiership of uh, um, uh, Yasuhiro Nakasone, and then the five-year premiership in the early 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s of uh, Koizumi Junichiro, uh, you have nonetheless had probably by at that point a dozen or more prime ministers who served a matter of months to a year or maybe a year or two, um, and we got used to that. And, and, and so what Abe has done is really fundamentally transformed the Japanese landscape. Now, from one perspective, what we had hoped for uh, when the Liberal Democratic Party originally lost power uh, back in uh, 2006 is that we would see the emergence of a very healthy two-party system. You'd have the Democratic Party of Japan and the Liberal Democratic Party, and they'd they'd be trading back and forth. And instead, what you saw was a three-year period where the DPJ dominated Japanese politics and then the LDP roared back into power under Abe and has dominated since then. So from one perspective, Japan has not yet quite got to that point where you have the the sort of healthy bilateral party system that, that we have, although that has its own problems, as we know. But uh, given that Japan was undergoing years of, of prime ministers who were ineffective, who didn't have a vision, who uh, were, were you know, sort of party apparatchiks and, and faceless figures, this is really unprecedented. And, and um, on the one hand, I don't think we should get too used to it because the big question is who comes after Abe in 2022 or so? And that's going to be here before we know it. Um, and he said he's not going to run again. So we may get back to that period where Japan goes through um, less charismatic or less effective uh, prime ministers. And, and that would that would definitely not be good. Um, but it's also a moment where I think the Trump administration should be taking every advantage of having this ally in place who wants to do more, who has uh, transformed a lot of Japanese policies that were restrictive uh, on doing things like uh, cooperation for self-defense or or even arms production and, and uh, development and the like. Um, I think this is this may be your last great chance uh, for a while, at least, to get as much done with Japan as you can, uh, be, precisely because you have, as John was talking about, John Pomfrey was talking about, a China that is increasingly assertive and increasingly aggressive throughout the Indo-Pacific. Well, you know, for a while, it was not in American interest to have a, a kind of nationalist Japan, if that's what Abe is going to be remembered for. But that may not be the case anymore. You know, it might be uh, the case, as you say, with the rise of China and, as John said, the need to strengthen American alliances around the world and to get other allies to contribute to this sort of uh, containment of China you know, American policymakers may want to have a more uh, a Japan that's more interested in its in protecting its national interests because they align so closely with ours. I can see where in the '60s and '70s, uh, you know, we might have been worried that Japan might go f go too far to the left, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen now. I, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. you know, look, it's 75 years plus since the end of World War II. Um, 
And, you know, if, if what you're saying is that you still can't trust Japan, then, you know, then what you're saying is that states never change and, and, and peoples never change. And that's clearly not the case, uh, not the case with Japan. Um, I think that really what is underestimated by Americans uh, and probably uh, the rest of the world outside of Asia is the competition for power and influence in Asia between Japan and China. Now, we think it's all about us and we think it's all about Washington and Beijing. Uh, but, you know, from one perspective, we are uh, both a geographic and an historical anomaly in Asia, you know, that we've decided to be so engaged for so long, so many thousands of miles from our homeland. Uh, but Japan is there. Uh, and if there's one country that China worries about, it's Japan. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's more developed. Uh, it has a higher standard of living. Uh, it has, I would argue, uh, this may be a debatable point, but I think Japan actually may have more friends in Asia, even with all of the historical problems uh, that remain. But it well, China may has, have more China friends has no Asia. friends. China, China has well, it's, it's, They have no real alliances out of mutual interests. It's yeah, they got Chinese Laos. Dominant. <laughs> they, they got can Cambodia. Have <laughs> they got North Korea. They got all the culinary hotspots, John, of, of the Indo-Pacific. I don't know why you're so down on China's alliance system. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Japan has real problems. Look, it is in the midst of a Cold War with Korea that is very concerning. Japan has slapped um, basically uh, uh, export bans on chemicals that that uh, Korea, South Korea desperately needs uh, for uh, high tech production. Uh, the two have come sort of close to military blows, believe it or not. Uh, they are they are in a terrible, uh, a terrible situation. Um, ironically, uh, last October, Xi Jinping, the president of China and Shinzo Abe, uh, declared a new era in Japanese-Chinese relations. I, I don't know how deep that will actually go and how long it will last, but um, it, it is it is one where Japan has, you know, under Abe has steadfast steadily made gains among Southeast Asian nations with India, Australia, and even sort of forcing China to recognize that it's not going anywhere. So that that contest, and it's a contest that's economic through um, aid giving, the Asian Development Bank that's run by Japan versus the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that's run by China, um, the, the military cooperation with Coast Guards and, and the like. Um, it's, you know, we get all obsessed with how powerful China is. And I would argue in Asia, there is no question that China is the major trade partner of everyone. But uh, I think it's debatable uh, whether it is the, the, you know, the key political partner and, and whether it's the key aid partner necessarily, uh, trade and aid being different things, uh, and, and whether it's the key sort of model uh, for nations as they look to uh, develop their own internal system. So it doesn't mean much for U.S. policy necessarily on a day-to-day basis, but what I do think is that we should be aware of it and we should understand uh, that not only has Abe made some enormous changes uh, and, and the likes of which we may not see again for a generation or, or in the absence of a crisis, uh, but also that we, we really do have a very capable ally in, in Japan. It's it's not perfect. No one is. And it's got uh, enormous 
problems at home it's dealing with, demographic problems and the like. Um, but really, it is it is one where you have this moment uh, to take uh, to take a lot more advantage of that. And and I just think it's it's notable uh, that that uh, we're in this period of of such uh, stability in Japan, and and we should um, not take it for granted. Yeah, I wanted to uh, also bring our attention uh, towards the end of the show about those issues you just mentioned, the Japan-Korea. There's some really interesting events that occurred uh, uh, with Japan-Korea and involving Korea alone. Uh, One of them is about this island, which uh, Misha knows I have great interest in. I've already written one article about it, and I've actually got another one uh, coming out in the – actually, get this, the Chinese Journal of International Law – um, in a month. Uh, wow. And this is this little island in between Korea and Japan called Dokdo, which or Korea and Japan Takeshima. both – yeah, Takashima to the Japanese, Dokdo to the Koreans, uh, of which there's been a long dispute. The interesting thing is that uh, China and Russia tried to fly <laughs> a bomber patrol over it <laughs> uh, in the last week, uh, yes. which caused actually the Koreans to scramble uh, fighter jets and actually fire warning shots. At some of these bomb, new, potentially you know nuclear capable, but I'm sure weren't armed with nuclear weapons, uh, which is interesting because one, I think uh, Russia and China wanted to declare that they were players in uh, this area, which they always have been, and they wanted to, I think, stoke or identify and stoke divisions between Korea and Japan. Because if you look at it from their perspective, they love that Korea and Japan are. Uh, fighting with each other. They love that Japan has imposed sanctions on Korea. They love – they would love for Korea to do something back to Japan because I think one thing we learned from our uh, conversation with John earlier is that uh, the only – you know, Korea, Japan, the United States are the ones who benefit from having an alliance system to contain China. China would, as, you, as I think you mentioned and he mentioned, would love to deal with all of us as individual fragmented uh, nations, and then the other thing that happened in um, Korea, you might notice, was uh, that North Korea is getting ticked off that no one's paying attention to them again, and so they fired off a bunch of short-range missiles, um, which they tend to do every time they want something from us. And again, it's this interesting uh, dynamic which characterizes, I think, North Korea. Uh, you know, they don't have. Anything to offer in terms of positives, you know, most countries like the when you want to engage in relations uh, like the TPP, they come to you say, look, if we cooperate, we're going to bring, we're both going to benefit. We bring things to the table by cooperating. We both create a surplus. You know, that's that's what trade is. North Korea has this opposite perspective. It's actually kind of like the one the Iranians are pursuing right now too, which is we're not going to bring anything to the table that makes us better off, both of us better off, but. You have to basically pay us not to hurt you. <laughs> it's sort right. of an extortionist approach to foreign policy. Which is, the only thing we bring to the table is nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're the, like they're the George Costanza <laughs> of Asia. You know, North Korea is saying, we got nothing. What's the show about? Nothing. nothing. The only thing we – the best possible world, <laughs> if you do what we want, is for nothing to happen. Otherwise, we're going to do bad things. Sometimes they even promise to do bad things to themselves. Right? We're going to keep hurting our population. Pay us off to stop hurting the population. Pay us off to stop – developing the kind of capabilities that just could bring harm to everybody around us. It's a, you know, it's a very unusual but effective negotiating strategy. And so every time they want something, they start launching missiles. And, you know, unfortunately, 
I think you see the United States and other countries, they respond to that. That's right. It's been wildly successful, uh, and they're doing it, obviously. They've, they've announced that they are losing patience with the Trump administration, uh, and they want another meeting. They they want uh, something to go forward where uh, more of the uh, the sanctions are lifted and uh, probably direct aid is given. You know, we haven't heard much. You know, we, we've had the three summit-level meetings between uh, President Trump and the 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 dear leader uh, Kim Jong Un, but uh, nothing has uh, nothing's really happened in the at the working level, and uh, they're they're very frustrated uh, with that. Of course, from the Trump uh, administration's perspective, uh, you know the working level was was actually the area that uh, snagged us for 25 years, and and so while they mm-hmm. said we're going to go back and have talks, um, you know I think. Their model is is not to rush into the type of diplomatic rondelets that never produced anything uh, for so many decades. Um, and by the way, I would just mention you're you're right and uh, about uh, your your prior point about this this air encounter. Um, it, it was unprecedented. First of all, this was the first joint air patrol between China and Russia. So the the Russian bear starting to sniff around in mm. uh, Eastern Asia, again, Northeast Asia. Um, not only did the South Koreans scramble, but the Japanese scrambled as well. And, and actually, the Japanese backed up the, the South Koreans when the Russians disputed the account. Uh, the South Koreans claimed they fired 300 warning shots. Uh, and by the way, when you're when you're flying at 600 miles an hour, and you're firing 300 warning shots, one of those shots could hit a plane, oh, right? Yeah. And that plane could go down. Uh, it it actually, uh, I think it was not a bomber, John, but I think it was a a um, uh, basically an early warning aircraft. Yeah, you're that right. The it's Russians a had reconnaissance craft. Yeah, it's part of. A, uh, but there were bombers. Bata- that were yeah, part bomber of this. patrol. Right. Uh, and what they did is they crossed into South Korea's air identification, air defense identification zone. Every nation there has an air defense identification zone. They overlap at times. So this is an extraordinarily fraught region uh, in terms of the the security patterns that that are emerging because there's there's no real there's no real trust now it's always when something like this happens that we say well aha now Seoul and Tokyo have to figure out that their interests lie together and that they got to come together for their collective common self-defense and work with their common ally the United States against China and Russia but you know what that never seems to happen so we'll we'll see if this may have been a turning of the corner, I highly doubt it. Um, but uh, but as much as we're looking at the South China Sea, as much as we look at Hong Kong, uh, don't forget what's going on in the um, uh, the Sea of Japan area, the Yellow Sea area. These are all extremely contested airspaces and water spaces. And um, all it's going to take is one of those warning shots to go the wrong way. And you've got a major international crisis on your hands. Well, you know, like Russia has a tendency to do, they're going to – they have the uh, – they run their own risk of bringing everyone together against them. And on that note, right. I think that would be a – that's a great way to, I think, end uh, this episode of the Pacific Century. So on behalf of uh, me and uh, Misha Oslin, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Uh, thank John Pomfrey for joining us. And uh, until next time, uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.